In life's journey, we must seek to reflect, learn, and grow. Welcome to The Road to Rediscovery with your host, Aubrey Johnson. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Road to Rediscovery. I'm your host, Aubrey Johnson. The Road to Rediscovery is about reflecting on past life lessons to learn and grow and to take it to the next level and uplift others who are going through dark times, struggling through dark times. The journey of our lives can have some quite scenic parts. Wouldn't you agree? It can have intriguing turns, hills, and some scenes that, quite honestly, we'd like to forget that we saw. Now, most of you know that I love movies, particularly those containing timeless quotes. In one of the last lines of the movie, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Matthew Broderick's character says, life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look once in a while, you can miss it. I truly believe my special guest has experienced quite an amazing journey thus far. He is an author of such interesting books as How I Accidentally Started the 60s and The Genius of the Beast. He was the publicist for legends, I'm telling you, legends like Michael Jackson, Prince, Bette Mittler, John Mellencamp, and so much more. He's a scientist, having found three international scientific groups, among other things. In 1988, he became struck with chronic fatigue syndrome, confined to his home, but stayed hard at work, writing books, making virtual appearances, and more. I can go on and on, but... I rather suggest that we hear it straight from the gentleman himself. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Mr. Howard Bloom. Howard, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Armory, it's a pleasure to see you. We're doing extremely well. Oh, fantastic. It's great having you here. And I am just so, 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 so ready for this conversation and the insights that you can share with our listeners. So with such a vast background, we can actually start anywhere, you know, but let's first start by telling the listeners, uh, if you could tell them where you're from and your upbringing, and as you specialize in a vast number of professions, I'm sure they'd love to hear and know when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Um, I had a peculiar childhood, Aubrey. Um, my uh, World War I came up just about the time that I was born, World War II, sorry, wrong war, <laughs> um, just about the time that I was born. Okay. And my dad, um, despite the fact that he was 33 years old and wore glasses and had a brand new kid, was drafted. So I grew up in Buffalo, New York. My dad was shipped off to San Francisco. My mom, he had just started a tiny little liquor store. My mom had to take care of that liquor store. And mm. she, she was an extremely bright woman, and she did something really dumb. Instead of hiring a babysitter to take care of me, she hired a cleaning woman. Now, a babysitter thinks that her job is to take care of the baby, right? right? But a cleaning one thinks her job is to take care of the vacuum cleaner and the rug. And the rug was about the size of a postage stamp because we had an apartment the size of a craft cheese box. <laughs> so, so these cleaning women would lock me behind a baby gate in a windowless, dark, cold corridor. My hands, I was crawling at the time. Your hands feel the coldness of the floor. Um, and the, the light that I loved coming in through the bay window was way, way off in the distance. And that's how I spent the first three years of my life. So I didn't grow up like a normal human being. Mm. Um, and then when I finally encountered other kids, they didn't like me. 
and they used me as a target. Um, they beat me up, they chased me around the block, they humiliated me, things like that. Mm. So I was 10 years old. I was sitting in my family's living room. I'd finally gotten out of the baby cage, and we'd gotten a new house. And um, this book appeared in my lap. And the book, I, you know, it's a book that was never on my family's shelves. I had never seen it before. God knows where it came from. And the book said, the first two rules of science are these. The truth at any price, including the price of your life. And it gave the example of Galileo, um, who it said would have been willing to go to the stake to defend his truth, which later on, 30 years later, I'd find that wasn't quite true. But that heroic image of courage, I needed. And rule number two of science, look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before, and then proceed from there. So here I was, a kid that nobody wanted to have anything to do with, including my parents. And all of a sudden, I had a group of people to hang out with, people like Galileo and the inventor of the microscope, Anton von Leeuwenhoek, who was responsible for point number two, look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before, and then proceed from there. So I dove into science, and by the age of 12, I had assembled scientific, minor scientific credentials. I built my first Boolean algebra machine. I co-designed a computer that won um, some awards at science fairs. I'd had my first and only meeting with the head of the graduate physics department at the University of Buffalo, and we'd argued Big Bang versus Steady State Theory of the Universe and the interpretation of the Doppler shift, which was the biggest subject in science at the time. I was 12, Aubrey. And, um, and my mom pulled off a coup, and she got the head of research and development for a company that made the valves for the first plane to break the speed of sound and for the first plane to take humans to the edge of space um, right. to, to tutor me personally. And then at 16, I was working at the world's largest cancer research um, center, and instead of doing the work on immunology that I was supposed to be doing, I came up with the theory of the beginning, middle, and end of the universe that predicted something that wouldn't be discovered for 38 years called dark energy. So that was my background. But at the age of 12, I realized I was an atheist. And um, I realized that just before the high holidays, which in the Jewish tradition are extraordinarily important. Right. Um, and it was September. My parents managed to get me into a suit. They managed to get me into their Ford or a Fraser automobile. They managed to get me all the way to Richmond Avenue where the synagogue was, and then I refused to go any further. So I was holding onto the doorframe with both hands, and my parents were trying to drag me by the ankles up to the synagogue. And I had a sudden realization, since there are, I'm an atheist, so there are no gods in the sky, there are no gods beneath the ground, but there are gods in, these scene, in this scene. They're in my parents. They're in this astonishing passion with which my parents are willing to drag their firstborn son up the street like a sack of meat to get him to the synagogue. And if the gods are inside my parents, they're inside of me. And I became interested in the ecstatic experience, the experience of rising to something bigger than yourself that utterly takes you over and sends you writhing on the floor out of control of yourself while something else takes you over. And I wanted to include that in my science. You know, I started in theoretical physics and microbiology, but everything in science is fair game. Science is about trying to understand absolutely everything. And I wanted to understand this in the context of science. And then when I was 16, I had this bizarre experience. I was still unpopular. My parents had sent me off to a private school, which was lovely. It was extremely generous of them because I didn't fit into the public schools at all. 
And um, the kids in my school, even though they hated me, elected me the president of something called the program committee for two years in a row. Uh, every morning we started with a 45 minute assembly. I programmed two of those assemblies a week and I emceed all three of them. And one day the juniors came to me and they said, we're having a dance, could you advertise it? And they didn't understand the irony of what they were asking. If there was a party of any kind, anywhere in Buffalo, New York, with kids my age, I was cordially invited to stay as far away as possible, preferably Cleveland or Austin, Texas. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Nonetheless, I said yes, mm -hmm. and um, the next day I put some music on the turntable behind the stage, and I went on the stage, and I can't dance, Aubrey. I can't do the box trot, the box trot, whatever it's called, the box step, the fox trot, the waltz. I can't right. do any of those things. And I danced, and I looked like a Looney Tune drawn on LSD. Um, it was a, a crazy sight, and I saw in front of me the faces of 350 kids who hated me. And I saw their faces melt, and I saw their pupils widen, and I had an out-of-body experience. I thought I was on the ceiling watching this whole thing taking place. And I saw the energy of those 350 people came, come together in one big amoebic blob and reach a pseudopod out to me. And I saw the energy of that audience, those 350 people, course through me as if I were an empty pipe, someplace around my head become utterly transmogrified and get sent back to that audience again in a continuous reverberatory loop, a feedback loop. And when I finished, it was my first out-of-body experience. I think I've only had two of them altogether. And when I finished, the audience did something it had never done before in my time at that school and would never do again, not for homecoming queens, not for football heroes, not for anything. They surged down to the foot of the stage as if they had practiced this maneuver all their lives. They picked me up off the stage. They put me on their shoulders. They carried me up from the building in which the uh, assemblies took place to the building in which we had our classes. And only then did they put me down. It was an astonishing experience. And here I had been after, yeah, I'd been after the ecstatic experience since I was 12. And I'd been after the gods within since I was 12, well, all of a sudden I was taken over by them. I had a whole new kind of experience of them. So we'll fast forward many years and I graduated from NYU, look, the head of the graduate physics department at, uh, at the University of Buffalo, my hometown university, when we finished discussing the Doppler shift for an hour, came out of his office, I was 12, he put his hand on my shoulder and he said to my mom, you don't have to save for grad school for him. He'll get fellowships at any school he wants in theoretical physics. Well, so he was right. I got four grad school fellowships, but they were in something that didn't have a name yet. Today we call it neuroscience. I was going to have to paste it together myself. And then I had a sudden realization. If I go into grad school, that's going to be Auschwitz for my mind. Because here I am after the ecstatic experience. And if I'm giving paper and pencil, test. 22 college students in exchange for a psychology credit. How many times am I going to see the ecstatic experience in the rest of my career? Zero. I will never see it at all. Um, meanwhile, in my junior year, I had taken poetry very seriously, poetry and writing very seriously since I was 16. Uh -huh. And um, I was taking poetry courses from the poet in residence. And one day he said, look, Bloom, Wait until everybody leaves the class, close the door, sit in this seat. 
I want to talk to you. It sounded ominous, Aubrey. So I waited until they all left. I closed the door. I sat in the bowling out seat. And he said, look, you, last year I asked you to be on the staff of the literary magazine. You never even showed up. This year I'm telling you, you are the literary magazine. You are the editor of the literary magazine. You don't even have a faculty advisor. The minute you walk out that door, you're it. You're the literary magazine. Now walk out that door. So I walked out the door and I looked very confused and a kid stopped me and basically said, what's wrong? You look very disturbed about something. And I said, yes, I've just been, I've just been named the editor of the literary magazine because I hated literary magazines. You know, there, you would take a literary magazine and throw it into a room in which a roaring orgy is taking place. And within two minutes, the orgy would stop and everybody would walk out of the room. The covers of these really, these, these pallid blue that would put you to sleep. And the typefaces are picked by people who obviously know nothing about typefaces or design whatsoever. Wow. So this kid took me down to a coffee shop. Remember, I didn't grow up among other kids. He said, let's have a cup of coffee. I didn't know what that meant. But I followed, followed him obediently downstairs to a coffee shop. Mm-hmm. And he ordered coffee and I ordered a glass of water. And he asked me one of the most important questions I've ever been asked. If you could do anything you wanted with this magazine, what would it be? And I said it would be a picture book. So I decided to turn it into a combination literary magazine and experimental graphics magazine. And I went out looking for artists. And um, so when I graduated, Phi Beta Kappa, Magna Cum Laude, and with my four graduate fellowships, I had a staff of artists that I had been working with for a year and a half. Mm. And I walked into the home, into the apartment of one of those artists one day on the Lower East Side in Manhattan, what's now called the East Village. Mm-hmm. And he was sitting on the floor, his wife was sitting on the floor, their three-year-old child was sitting on the floor, they were all crying and there was no furniture in the room. And I asked them what was wrong. And they explained that we've run out of money, um, they repossessed our furniture, Um, they're turning off our electricity and our phone, and we're being thrown out of our apartment. And I said, your work is just amazing, absolutely amazing. Give me your work. I haven't got a summer job yet. I'm supposed to go to Columbia University in September um, in neuroscience. But um, I'll take your work out for two weeks, and in two weeks I'll be able to get you enough work that you can pay your rent, um, and then I can find a summer job. And it didn't quite work out that way. I mean, he said, okay, if you take out my work, you have to take out the work of my best friend because we have always wanted to have an art studio together. His best friend's work was nauseating. To me, it wasn't art at all. But if that's what he wanted, fine. And I took out his work, and by the end of the summer, I had gotten New York Magazine interested in doing a feature on our studio, but I still hadn't sold anything. And I, I, I had that realization. If I go to grad school, that's the end of everything that I've ever wanted to really pursue. But this business of trying to sell this art has taken me into every major advertising agency, every major magazine, every major uh, TV network. In other words, it's a periscope position um, with which I can look for the gods within, the thing that I've been hunting for since my parents were dragging me by the ankles. Right, um, right. And, uh, and all of that led to rock and roll by accident, by total accident. Now, Aubrey, I didn't listen to rock and roll music. That was the music of the kids who beat me up. I listened to Rachmaninoff, Beethoven, Bartok, Stravinsky, people like that. But 
once I got into the music, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Mm. And I ended up founding the biggest, I mean, there were other mishaps along the way, but I ended up founding the biggest PR firm in the music industry and working with some of the people you mentioned, Michael Jackson, Prince, Bob Marley, Bette Midler, ACDC, Aerosmith, Kiss, Queen, Run, DMC, Billy Joel, Billy Idol, Paul Simon, Peter Gabriel, David Byrne, um, the uh, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, Shaka Khan, um, ZZ Top, Joan Jett, and Billy Idol, among other people. Mm. I forgot John Mellencamp. So, and what was my job? It took me time to realize what I was in this for. Um, but the first time I went to, before I founded my company, um, I ended up by accident as the editor of a magazine. And I, so, look, when I was 12 years old, I had this weird experience. I was in eighth grade, and a girl actually turned her eyes and looked at me. And that had never happened to me before in my life. What's more, she made eye contact, which was startling. I'd never experienced that before. Right. And she said, I told my mom, you understand the theory of relativity. Well, at that time, the theory of relativity's reputation was that only seven men in the world could understand it. Um, and I didn't dare confess to her that I didn't know a thing about relativity because science was my thing. The kids called me the sickly scientist. It was the only acknowledgement of any kind I got. Um, so I, as soon as school was out, I jumped on my bicycle and I pedaled to the local library where the lo local librarians literally knew me better than my mother did and said, give me everything you've got on relativity. And they shoved two books across the desk. One was a great big fat book by Einstein and two collaborators. And one was a tiny little skinny book with a blue cover by Einstein himself. And I put them in my bicycle clamp and I rode home as fast as I could. And I started reading the big fat book first because I'd learned but if you put yourself through the most difficult path, not the easiest path, and you don't think you've understood anything, by the time you come to the end of a book, you've understood something. Mm, right. but, at, but by 8 o'clock that night, I'd only gotten 50 pages into this big, fat book. It was all equations with about seven words of English per page. And I have never in my life understood equations. So I suddenly realized I got two hours before my mom puts me to sleep, two hours right. in which to understand the theory of relativity, or I will be utterly humiliated tomorrow um, when I show up in class. So I turned to the little skinny book, and again, that's, it was by Einstein all by himself. And in the introduction, Aubrey, it felt as if he had reached out through the pages of the book, grabbed me by the front of my shirt, put his nose up to mine, and said, schmuck, listen up. <laughs> to, be a to be a genius, it is not enough to come up with a theory that only seven men in the world can understand. To be a genius, you have to be able to come up with that theory and then explain it so clearly that anyone with a high school education and a reasonable degree of intelligence can understand it. In other words, Albert Einstein, when I was 12 years old, felt as if he were personally telling me to be a, an original scientific thinker. You have to be a writer, and not just any old writer, but a, an outstanding writer, an extraordinary writer. Mm -hmm. So that set me on the path to writing as something important in my life. Right. And so I spent three years building up the art studio, mm -hmm. and I brought, there was a guy uh, named Maddie Simmons. Maddie Simmons had um, helped invent something new for American Express. It was called the credit card, and he'd made a fortune. And Maddie now wanted to be a magazine publisher. So he bought a girl's magazine called Ingenue. 
And then he had an idea. There was a magazine these kids at Harvard would put out every single year. Every single year it went on newsstands all across America and it sold out within two hours. So Maddie flew up to Boston, met with the two kids who were putting the magazine out at that point, Doug Tenney and Henry Beard, and said, look, why don't you put this magazine out not once a year, but once a month? And if you do, I will give you gorgeous apartments in New York City. I will give you extraordinarily high salaries. You'll be important people in New York, and you can be the founders of a magazine. Well, the magazine that was put out at Harvard once a year was called The Lampoon, and the magazine that Maddie was proposing was called The National Lampoon. And Maddie treated me like a father. So when it came to art directing The National Lampoon, Maddie hired me. He hired us. He hired my art studio. Well, remember the guy whose artwork was so awful, nauseating, that I really didn't want to include him? He got the artist together and said, look, now we have this great big fat steady check coming in every single month. Why do we need Howard? If we kick Howard out of the studio, we can take his share of the money and we can split it up among ourselves. So half of the artists threw me out of their studio and the other half left with me. And but by then I'd started writing for magazines. I really wanted to write for magazines. To me, that seemed like the ultimate fulfillment of the Einstein imperative, mm-hmm. you know, write brilliantly. Um, and but I didn't know how to get into magazine writing. And one day I was taking our portfolio, the Cloud Studio portfolio, up to a new underground fashion magazine called Rags, which was bankrolled by Baron Woolman, the guy who had bankrolled Rolling Stone. Mm-hmm. And I came out of the freight elevator in this uh, industrial building um, in the garment district with my portfolio in my hand, ready to put it down on a desk and see the three women who were in the office who went over it. That never happened. They saw the clothes I was wearing and their jaws dropped. Now, it was, remember, it was the, 19, the late 1960s and early 1970s. And, right. and I had helped accidentally found the hippie movement out of California, which is a whole other story. That's how I accidentally started the 60s. Now we're really talking about the material in my new book. In the book, right. Yes, Einstein, Michael Jackson, and me, A Search for Soul in the Power Pits of Rock and Roll. Right. Which was just named the number one book, the the best book of 2020 by uh, the New York um, Weekly Times and by the LA Weekly Times. Oh, wow. So, yeah, that that happened yesterday. Incredible. Congratulations. So at any rate, I was co-designing my clothes with a designer on the Lower East Side whose, whose little shop was near our art studio at 4th Street and 2nd Avenue on, in, in the East Village. So I walked in wearing my normal clothes, which were perfectly abnormal. Nobody had ever seen anything like them. And the three women, instead of being interested in my portfolio, their jaws dropped when they saw me come out of the elevator. And they said, do you have more of these pointing at my clothes? And I said, yes, I've got a whole closet full of them. Why? And they said, well, do you think you could write an article about these? And look, I had been working on my writing since I was basically 12 years old. Um, So the answer, and I wanted to get into magazines. So the answer was yes. 175 articles later, um, I'd become a contributing editor to Rags. And then one of the people at Rags Magazine, another contributing editor, started her magazine called Natural Lifestyles, and I was the contributing editor to that too. So my artist kicked me out of the studio. Now, what I'd been doing is I'd been getting up at 6 in the morning, going totally naked to the computer, 
I mean, so we didn't have computers. Going totally naked to a Remington manual typewriter, which right. you had to use to hit one key. You had to use a sledgehammer. I mean, this was an impossible typewriter. And I'd sat there typing from 8 o'clock in the morning until 9 o'clock in the morning. I mean, from 6 o'clock in the morning until 8 o'clock in the morning. And then I'd put on my clothes, and I'd gone off to the art studio. And then at night, I'd come home and sat with a pot of coffee until 11 o'clock at night at that manual typewriter, typing my tail off. And I was getting tired. So they kicked me out of the studio. I was covering a parapsychology conference for Natural Lifestyles magazine. I don't believe in, in mind readers and spoon vendors and stuff like that, but I was covering it. And somebody saw me with a pad glued to my left hand because I traveled everywhere with a pad, constantly taking notes and figured I was a writer and said, would you like to edit a magazine? Well, of course, if I edited a magazine, I wouldn't have to get up at six in the morning. I could do my writing during the day. Right. So I said, I said, yes. And it never occurred to me to ask what the magazine was about. So he set up a meeting with the publisher at One UN Plaza, which is this gorgeous building. Johnny Carson lived there mm-hmm. at the time on the grounds of the UN. Um, okay. and, and I went into an... Uh, I went into an office with seven windows overlooking the river, and you could see ships coming from two miles up the river and going two miles down the river. It was startling. But I hadn't got – we didn't have Google. So I had the name of the publisher I was going to meet with, but I didn't have any information about him, and I couldn't Google him. Oh, so I had, wow, no, I had no idea of what his magazine was about. Oh, no. And, and I walked in, and he said his magazine was named Circus, and I figured, well, Elephants and Clowns, it's not really a thing that I'm really interested in the most in the world, but if you love your audience, and if you have do sufficient research, you can serve any reader. And he said, no, 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 it's not about Elephants and Clowns, it's about rock and roll. So I became a rock and roll magazine editor by yes. total accident. Wow. And I started, I started studying rock and roll like a Talmudic scholar. I mean, just absorbing as much as I possibly could. I bought yeah. this brand new thing that Sony made. It had two giant silver ear cups on it, and it had antennae that went out above your head that made you look like somebody from Venus. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a transistor radio with full stereo and high fidelity, um, wow. and the predecessor of the earbuds that we wear today. Right. So I could listen to music all the time on my bicycle while I bicycled into work from Brooklyn. Right, um, right. From Cobble Hill in Brooklyn, I studied my tail off. And my publisher sent me an assignment. He said, Here's what I really want to do. I want the magazine to read like Time Magazine. Well, that's easy because I read Time Magazine from cover to cover since I was 12. And my best friend and I always um, tied for number one in the Time Magazine current events competitions that took place every year. The mm-hmm. Time, okay, now I had to dissect it. That was a whole different matter. And he right. said, There are these two magazines in Europe. One is called Bravo, one is called Salut Salut les Copains. And they each sell a million copies in markets that are a fifth the size of the United States. That's equivalent to selling five million copies in the United States. But the best-selling rock magazine in North America sells only 250,000 copies. That's Rolling Stone. Mm -hmm. So how do I achieve the success of Bravo and Salut les Copains? So in my spare time... um, I started analyzing Bravo, Salut les Copains, and Time Magazine. And yeah, and a year into this, I came to him and I said, look, if you give me your sales figures and allow me to do correlational studies, because remember, I come from science, um, 
then I guarantee you we will sell magazines. And he was reluctant to give me the figures. He'd never done it before, but he gave me the figures anyway. And then I presented him with a formula for the magazine. And in the next 12 months, we increased in sales 211%. Mm-hmm. And one day, Chef Lippo, one of the founding editors of Rolling Stone, who had founded Rolling Stone's New York office, right. um, sent me a great big manila envelope by messenger with six typewritten pages in it. And I opened the envelope. I couldn't figure out why he would be doing such an expensive thing. It's expensive to hire messengers in Manhattan. Yeah. And, um, and I opened it, and I read the six pages, and it was about this little guy, um, like Rumpelstiltskin, in a converted broom closet who was working on a Remington manual typewriter and turning straw into gold for his boss. And in the words of Chet Pleppo, this person had single-handedly invented a new magazine genre, the heavy metal magazine. Well, that was me that he was describing. So, um, so, so I'm credited with single-handedly founding the magazine genre, the heavy metal magazine. And, and, and eventually, this led to... It led to establishing the career of Stephanie Mills. It led to establishing the career of Shaq Khan. And it led to my own PR firm, eventually. Right. So, and, and the story of all of that, remember, chasing the gods inside. Chasing the gods inside of us. Chasing that kind of experience that I'd had when I was 16 years old. Because guess where that experience comes alive night after night after night after night? That kind of ecstatic experience in rock and roll concerts. That's right. And I, I learned that, again, this whole story and more is in Einstein, Michael Jackson, and me, a search for soul and the power pits of rock and roll. It's a word from our commercial sponsor. So at any rate, um, here I was at Circus Magazine, knowing nothing about rock and roll, and um, I was invited to a concert by Fleetwood Mac. Well, in those days, Fleetwood Mac was a dying band. There were these two bands that had been big in Britain in the 1960s. They did blues. One was Chicken Shack and one was Fleetwood Mac. And both of them seemed on their last legs. But Fleetwood Mac was playing Carnegie Hall. And I went to Carnegie Hall and I noticed now I was not the person on stage. Now I was the person in the audience whose pupils were widening, whose face was melting. I felt how we walked in. You walk into a concert. And you're very aware of the people behind you on either side of you. And you want them to think you're cool. So you're aware of every move you make. And then the lights go down. And then you lose that self-awareness. And then your attention is gradually on your emotions are swallowed by what's going on on stage. And you become that face-melting person, face-melted person in the audience whose energy melds with the rest of the audience and that big amoeba right. blob. Right. So we had gone into this alternative reality of the concert state of mind um, where you're totally absorbed in what's going on in stage and lose all self-consciousness. And halfway into the concert, the electricity went out on the stage. There was no sound system. There was no lighting. Huh. And, and the lights went on over our heads. I mean, now you have to be aware of the people behind you and around you and how they think about you. And all of that incredible absorption in that amoebic blob is threatened with disappearance. Then Mick Fleetwood, who was this giant string bean of a man, he was probably six foot four or something like that, Mm -hmm. came to the foot of the stage. And now remember, Carnegie Hall was designed for acoustic performances originally. And he raised his fist in the air 
and he said, fuck it, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to rock and roll. And because we had been on the edge of a precipice, on the edge of a cliff, and he had lifted us off that edge, we felt a bonding 10 times as great as we would have felt if this were just a normal concert. Now we had really bonded together. And I saw, yeah, I saw what I had been looking for. I Mm -hmm. saw the land where the gods are. Mm -hmm. I saw the territory where the ecstatic experience comes alive. And I'd seen it now from both points of view, the point of view of being on stage and carried off on the shoulders of the audience and the point of view of being in the audience now. So it was to me a revelation. All of a sudden, by total accident, I had landed in the territory that I had been seeking all along. And one point in terms of uh, uh, the path to rediscovery, remember, I had a childhood that wasn't a childhood. I had a childhood without parents. I had a childhood without other human beings. Mm -hmm. And the result of that seems to be that there's no place for me in normal society. And because there's no place for me in normal society, that's not my disadvantage. That's my advantage. Because Society will not allow me to do any of the things that other people do. I can't catch or throw a baseball, for example, at all. Um, So the only thing open to me is to do things that other people cannot possibly do. Mm. And that's what I've been doing my entire life, including with the PR firm. It became the biggest PR firm in the music industry. Now, if you came to me as a client, and this is extremely important to what you were hinting at when you were talking about uh, growing up on the music of the 80s, and that being a rare time for iconic bands. If you came into my office and you wanted to work with me, I gave you a speech. And I said, look, if you expect me to to fashion an artificial mask for you and to sit back like a guy in a plaid check suit with a cigar in his hand saying, kid, with this image, I'm going to make you a star, then I'm going to send you to my best competitor immediately. You'll be in his office in two hours. Um, If you're going to work with me, you have to understand something. Music is not about an exchange of pieces of plastic. It is not about an exchange of downloads. It is not about an exchange of money. It is about an exchange of human soul. Uh Now, what do I mean by that? When you sit down, you've got an album deadline looming over your head. You sit down at 2 in the afternoon in front of a blank piece of paper or a blank computer screen. You know that you cannot possibly write a lyric. You wonder how you have ever written a lyric in your life. But by four in the afternoon on a reasonably good day, there is a lyric in front of you. And once or twice in your life, that lyric is so perfect, it feels as if it wrote itself through you. Mm. You had no choice. Right. And I am going to find the gods inside of you that wrote that lyric for you. When you go on stage, you see the faces of the audience melt. And you feel them come together in a common, common amoeba blob of energy and reach a pseudopod out to you, and you feel that you are having an out-of-body experience. And um, I'm going to fight the gods, and you see yourself as being danced like a marionette, like a puppet on stage. You see yourself as an empty pipe for the souls of 700 to 70,000 people all coming through you. Um, And I'm going to find, I'm going to show you the gods inside of you. I'm going to find them. I'm going to introduce them to the hello, how are you, fine, thank you very much, self of your everyday life. To do that, you're going to give me six weeks. You won't expect any results from me in PR whatsoever because I'm going to be studying you. I'm going to read everything you've ever written, every lyric. I'm going to listen to all of your albums. 
I'm going to look at every album cover you've ever put out, and I'm going to read every interview you've ever done. And then I'm going to come out to whatever place represents you the best. Um, and we are going to sit with no managers, no wives, no intercessors of any kind, just you and me. And I'm going to interview you for, any, for anywhere from one to three days. What am I looking for? I'm looking for the gods inside you that dance you on stage and that write your songs for you. Um, and, if you're, and if you're willing to abide by that, I will work with you. So those were the terms and conditions. And what did that mean? It means something very simple. An icon is something extraordinarily important. An icon is a person whose poster you'll hang up your wall when you're 12 years old and going through one of the most confusing transitions in human nature. And that is, you're going from being a child to your sexual hormones are working, they're confusing the hell out of you, you're going to be on your path to being a juvenile, an adolescent, and a young adult. And it is confusing as hell, because your hormones are telling you to get out of your parents' home and associate only with other kids your age. They're telling you to get out of the nest that you've lived in all your life. In some animals, those, when those hormones go off, the kids, the kids smell bad to their parents, like capuchin monkeys, and the parents smell bad to the kids. They're driven apart. And now you're going to have to make your life in a world that is utterly new and confusing to you. What's worse, you're going to be unlike any generation that has ever come before. For example, I mean, now we have technological revolutions every five years. That right. means the kids, every five to ten years, grow up in a techno environment that gives them powers that no human has ever had before. So when you hit the age of 12 and start shoving yourself out of your parents' home, you're in no man's land. You have a whole bunch of feelings that you've never seen articulated um, in your culture. And you feel that you're insane, that those feelings must be entirely yours, and you better hide them from your other human beings, because if your fellow human beings knew them, they would think you were crazy, and they would eject you. Um, and then along comes a rock and roller like Joan Jett, time when power moms were beginning to go out and have jobs, just the way dads had had jobs in the past. And Joan Jett comes along, and through her body language alone, she articulates those feelings you've had that you felt made you insane. And she shows you, you are not a solitary crazy person. You are part of a movement. There are others like you hundreds of others, thousands of others, millions of others like you. And that's the role of an icon. The icon becomes a trellis on which you grow. You know what a trellis is for a tomato plant? It's this oh, yeah. wooden yeah, wooden framework. Yep. Tomato plants naturally grow, grow along the ground. And because they do, tomato plants get, or tomatoes get soaked and are spoiled. But if you can get the tomato plant to grow upward, it keeps the tomatoes off the ground. So you put a wooden framework up, and the tomato plant grows on the wooden flame framework and grows up instead right. of across. Uh -huh. um, and if, I, if we're going to make you an icon, if you deserve to be an icon, because you have to deserve it, then there's something you have to remember. You don't just audience, owe your audience your songs. You owe your audience your life. You owe your audience the story of your life because kids are going to grow on that story. And they're going to grow on the articulation of that story they see in your body posture when you are on stage. You get that across through stance more than just about anything else. 
more than even your lyrics. Right. Um, and those kids are going through a period of their lives in which their brains are literally opening up for something new to attach themselves to. And once their brains circle around that thing and attach to them, they never let that thing go. And you will become that thing the kids attach to, like Kevin Cronin from REO Speedwagon. Kevin Cronin had, these are called imprinting moments in, in neurobiology and psychology. Okay. The moments when your brain opens up and looks for something with certain characteristics and then just locks around it and keeps it for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. So Kevin Cronin had an imprinting moment when he was five years old. He saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. And he saw a mob of screaming girls screaming so loud that you couldn't hear any of the songs the Beatles were playing at all. Right. And what did that indicate? It indicated that the Beatles had total attention, the total attention of the culture. Ed Sullivan show was the biggest show in North America at the time. Right. And it was the attention of screaming girls. Sex and attention put those two together, and you have imprinting points. Mm-hmm. Um, Kevin Cronin had another imprinting point 10 years later at the age of 15 when he saw, guess what? I mean, no, his first imprinting point, sorry, I'm getting this wrong, was Elvis Presley at the age of five on the Ed Sullivan Show. The second imprinting point was the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show with Prince. Um, What was his imprinting point? He was five years old. His mom took him to a theater. His dad was a jazz pianist. She took him to see his dad rehearsing. And Prince, so here's this empty theater but with 500 seats all pointed at the center of the stage, which is exactly where his dad is. And spotlights pointed at the center of the stage, which is exactly where his dad is. And five of the most beautiful women he's ever seen in his life behind his dad. And that's it, an imprinting point, sex and attention. Um, And Prince was off and running. Um, His next imprinting point came when he was probably about 13 and his friend, Andre Simone, yep. his, Andre Simone's mother had a finished basement. And nobody used it for anything. Uh-huh. So Prince made a deal with Andre Simone's mom. Now, Prince was the size of a flea. Right. It took me three Very years sure. to realize that Prince was so much shorter than I am that it's ridiculous. He was about five. <laughs> he was five foot two or less. Okay. And, but he had such a big personality. It took me three years of sitting in rooms with Prince one-on-one with nobody else around to yeah. realize that. And um, so Prince must have had a terrible time in school because kids kick you around mercilessly. Bullies are merciless. Right, right. So Prince, create, Prince created an alternative society in his mom's basement. And what was that alternative society based on? It was based on a slogan from the hippie movement, which I had accidentally helped found in the early 60s. And that slogan was make love, not war. Right. And it meant that Prince felt that sex was salvation. He felt that if you follow all of your sexual impulses freely, you'll rid the world of war. He literally felt that way. So he created this alternative society based on that belief in his basement. And then Prince spent the rest of his life creating alternative societies, little mini cultures of his own, little tribes um, of his own. Um, so when you, if you and I are working together. I'm going to spend all this time studying you, and then I'm going to look for your imprinting points, for your passion points. And I'm going to show them to you. And I'm going to take my notes when you and I finish, and probably on the plane on the way home. I mean, I started doing this when all we could do was write on a pad of paper. Um, and so when I got home with my John Mellencamp notes, 
I sat on my front stoop. It was a windy day. This was not a good day to be doing this outdoors. And I cut and I had my notes all typed up and I cut them into little pieces. And then I started rearranging them to get the chronological story that John was telling me of his life, which was pretty damn amazing. And I was using scotch tape and scissors. And then along came a little, the first laptop computer, the TRS-100. And it became a lot easier to do this, even though the TRS-100 did not have a monitor. It had a ribbon display. You know the display at Times Square where you see the news crawling yeah. across the screen or the news crawls on the screen on Fox TV? Like, like a marquee or a ticker? Yeah, right. And yeah. yeah. NBC? Well, yeah. that's what it had. That's the, whole, the only readout that it had. But still, you could take your notes and move them around until you got the coherent story that the artist was telling you. Because when we tell stories, first we remember things from one time, then we remember things from another time, then we remember something that was in between them, and we don't remember things in, in precise order. But if you put them in order and you structure them around the, the imprinting points, you've got a powerful story. So what I would do with Mellencamp or Prince is once I had organized what they had told me, into a strong story. I sent it back to them. And I said, well, look, when I started working, the story of Prince is this. I read the trade magazines. There were three trade magazines, Cashbox, Record World, and Billboard in those days. And I read every single one of them from cover to cover Monday morning before I did anything else. And I saw this album rising on the R&B charts, the black charts, which most people didn't pay a lot of attention to in those days. Right. And, and it was from an artist I'd never heard of. And I was shocked that I'd never heard of him because I followed everybody in the business. Um, and then I saw the album go gold. And it was an artist I'd never heard of. And albums on the R&P charts don't usually go gold. And then, I mean, when they're restricted, just the R&B charts. And then I saw it go platinum. I was astonished. And then I got a call um, saying, Earth, Wind & Fire's manager. I was working with Earth, Wind & Fire. Um, would like you to work on Prince. Are you interested? Well, Prince was the unknown artist. I had been tracking. Uh, wow. And of course I was interested. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that got me up and running with Prince. And then I got a call from Warner Brothers. And Warner Brothers had a Princeton and Harvard level staff, really, really bright and articulate people. And I got a call from one of the PR people on the West Coast saying, you're not going to be able to work with Prince. I'd never heard anything like this. Nobody ever said anything like this, like this about any other artist. And she yeah. tried to explain. She said, look, we set up two interviews for him on the West Coast. He didn't say a word to the first interviewer, and he tried to strangle the second interviewer. So I made my demands when it came to working with Prince. I've got to spend a day, at least a day, with you in your own environment. No, nobody else around but us, um, after I've studied you for six weeks, and they flew me up to Buffalo, New York. Now, that's ironic, because Prince is from Minneapolis. I'm from Buffalo. Right. right. Um, and, but Prince was rehearsing for his Dirty Minds tour at the Shea Theater in Buffalo, where I'd gone to see a movie when I was 11 years old. So this was his environment now, not mine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so I watched as the band rehearsed, and then when they finished about one or two in the morning, we went backstage and we found a room and locked ourselves in. And we didn't finish until something like 6 a.m. And I got this astonishing story of Prince's life with the two passion points that I just mentioned to you out yeah. of him. So I organized it on my TRS-100, if that's what I had at the time. 
And I sent it back to him and I said, okay, now here are the rules of interviews. This is your story. This is the story that came out of your mouth. This is the story of the gods inside you. You have to tell the story to every single interviewer you see. I'm gonna get you to come to New York and for three days, you're gonna do eight interviews a day. And then I'm gonna send you to, yes. And then I'm gonna send you to California and you're gonna do eight interviews a day for three days. And no matter what question an interviewer asks you, answer with this story. And here's what will happen. The interviewer will ask you a really stupid question like how do you categorize your music, which was the most popular interview question of the time, and it's an unanswerable question. Um, And you answer with your story. And here's what's gonna happen. That guy, because they were all men in those days, will go back to his wife that night and say, honey, I'm the most amazing interviewer in the world. I asked Prince this astonishing question. How do you um, categorize your music? And I got this amazing story. And you have to know something else. You're going to be very self-conscious about telling the same story over and over again. And you're going to want to say, as I said to the last guy, and then you're going to want to stop saying the stories that you said to the previous guys. Forget about that. Treat this the way you would when you go on stage and play your best songs. You play them as if you have never played them before in your life, despite the fact that you've played them 150 times. Right. So, and Prince took this education. He took it well. He did his 24 interviews in New York. He did his 24 interviews in L.A., and we were up up and running to a fabulous start. And then Prince felt that this was the University of Howard Bloom this schooling and how to do interviews. And he called called me out to Minneapolis because he had a new protege. Remember, Prince wrote music and performed it every day of his life. Oh, yeah. And two guys in the music industry had a serious problem, Elton John and Prince. Why? Because they wrote new music constantly. Mm. And when you are new, you can put out two albums a year. Sure. Then when you become big, you can only put out one album a year. Then when you become a superstar, you can only put out one album every two years because it has to be a major event. Right. And, and meanwhile, Prince is bursting with music. So how did he handle this? He developed protégés who performed his music and who worked under his guidance. And the first was right. Vanity. Right. So Vanity. he called me out to Minneapolis to do the Howard Bloom University thing with Vanity. Her story was nowhere near as compelling. As Prince's story, nowhere near. Right. And then I had a serious back problem in 1981, and it was so serious that I ended up naked in my bed again with just a sheet over me and one of those hospital trays over me with three out of my yeah. seven Rolodexes and a phone. And that's how I, I continued to do my work until finally I got so weak I couldn't talk anymore. Um, this is not the chronic fatigue syndrome. This is a back right, problem. Right. right, right. So I got a call from Bob Cavallo's office on the West Coast. Yep. Cavallo? From Yeah, from Jamie Shoup, one of his people, uh-huh. saying, Prince has a new protege and you have to do your thing with him. Prince insists on it. And I said, but Jamie, I'm laying here naked under a sheet uh, working for my bed. And she said, give me your address. We'll be there at 1130 tomorrow morning. Well, um, you have to understand, Aubrey, that my house is one of the best kept secrets in the record business because, <laughs> because I, um, I dressed to kill. I dressed in an outfit you've never seen anything like on anybody before in your life, but it was designed so that if I got a call to be with a record company president on a half an hour's notice, I was ready. Gotcha. Um, that was the facade. 
In reality, I knew that working the way I worked, 17 hours a day, seven days a week, and for eight years straight without a vacation, was going to burn me out physically someday. Somehow, in some way that I had no, I did not know, but I knew it would, and it would do that in my 40s. So my wife and I lived like college students, and that means that our furniture was all brought in off the street. Um, it was abandoned furniture. Um, that it was it was tattered and, and worn before we ever started with it. And then my wife had this obsession with finding a pregnant uh, feral cats. And once they, found, once they dropped their kittens, finding the kittens and the mom and bringing them in. So 80 cats made it through our house. I mean, then they were given away by my beautiful blonde stepdaughter. Um, so they didn't stay. But every single cat that came through here tried to sharpen her, his or her claws. On what? On the tattered furniture. So right. by the time I got this call from Bob Cavallo's office, there was no stuffing left on the furniture. It was just empty wood, wooden frameworks and springs. No, so, no. so at 11.30 the next morning, a limo came around my corner. My, my neighborhood at that time was a slum. Now it's one of the most expensive neighborhoods in, in North America. Um, but a limo came around our slum corner and stopped at my house. And out of one side came this beautiful blonde California girl. And out of the other side came a guy dressed in a zoot suit who, that was so immaculately pressed. The creases were so sharp that you would have sworn that there was a woman with an ironing board in the back of the limo with him. <laughs> and, and he came up the three flights, they both came up the three flights of stairs to my house um, with dust bunnies the size of rabbits, carnivorous rabbits. Mm -hmm. um, and they reached the door and in came Morris Day in this gorgeous suit, suit and one dog goosed him from the front and another dog goosed him from the rear. Oh, and he was, he was ushered to my room where I had at least put on clothes, where I was laying in a bed right. with this tray table over me. Yeah. Um, and with a chair that we had, my wife had covered with a sheet um, so that you couldn't see the naked springs and the naked wood. Right, right. And that's, and that's where we did our thing. And I did that right up to Kristen Scott Thomas, who Prince discovered in France. Um, right. Kristen Scott Thomas, I don't know if you followed her career. She got an Academy Award nomination for the English Patient. Um, I think she got another Academy Award nomination for being the mother in The Horse Whisperer. She did this absolutely brilliant film called Salmon Fishing in the Yaman. Amazing film. Mm. Um, and she did The Darkest Hour, where she played Winston Churchill's wife. Gotcha. And she's won so many awards. She's just an astonishing woman. And But she was one of Prince's discoveries. He discovered her in France. And in France, what was she doing? She was an English woman. Um, there is something called the Académie Française, and it's the theater of France, the National Theater of France. And they don't even allow English people, people in to uh, mop the floors, much less be on stage. And yet she was one of the core actresses in the Comédie Française. It was astonishing. Um, she was just amazing. So, so this is what I did for a living, finding the gods inside of people like Prince, um, inside of people like Michael Jackson, which was the most astonishing experience of my entire life, um, and, and, and John Mellencamp and ZZ Top. That was an amazing experience because it meant finding the, the soul of the Texas experience. Um, it was 1976, and, and, and I, movements were coming out of the closet and claiming the right to exist, and Texans felt they'd been left out. 
is they felt they were ashamed to confess that they came from Texas. So Johnny and Edgar Winter, who came from Beaumont, Texas, pretended they were from Connecticut. And yeah. Janice Joplin, who, who came from Port Arthur, Texas, pretended she was from San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And ZZ Top felt it was time for Texas culture, which was totally unique, to express itself and come out loud and proud and declare its right to exist without humiliation. So I got to work on movements that meant coming out of the closet and expressing your right to exist without humiliation, like the gay movement, the gay pride movement that really uh, used uh, disco music as its anthem and used that music to come out of the closet, like country and Western, which was locked in a ghetto in the Bible Belt, and I helped it go national and international, like punk music, the the music of young white rebellion, like rap music, which started as a music of young black, uh, not rebellion, it's a different kind of rebellion. It was a kind of pride um, movement of its own. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that then became the same thing for for white suburban kids. Um, So it was movement after movement after movement. It wasn't just a matter of finding the gods within individuals. It was a matter of finding the souls of groups and then helping those groups um, express their right to exist. You know, Howard, that is that is absolutely beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. I really appreciate how 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 vivid you paint the picture for the listeners uh, when you when you describe, you know, when when you're bedridden because of your back and 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 how you know what you were dressed in or not dressed in and having that <laughs> that that tin that tin tray over your over your midsection and everything just very vivid uh, uh the artists that you've worked with and the way that you explain to them uh you know just just how they need to find their inner god within them and all the work that you will do as a commitment to them in observing them, right? Observing them and how they work, how they operate, how they perform uh, to, to, help, to help them realize the God within them. Another part of the beauty that I really, really appreciate you sharing with us, Howard, is uh, how you, to your point, it was a rediscovery period. You turned around the experience, the out-of-body experience you had in your youth from the event where you felt the energy of, of all of those people out in the crowd and, and, and without even expecting it, you know, they picked you up and carried you, you know, across, across the room, you know, right. and, and, and feeling that. And then years later being on the other side in the crowd at, you know, about to listen to Fleetwood Mac right. and, and the connection and the energy that started there you know, and, and now you're the giver of that energy to them, but to some point you received it initially uh, as well, you know, with, uh, with everybody being there and you're paying attention to every little thing, then the lights go out. So uh, taking that, that early experience and, and, and that early encounter and, and, and using that to help, to help cultivate and flourish the careers of so many iconic artists uh, across multiple genres too. That's another thing I really appreciate across multiple genres. Um, you know, that, that is absolutely remarkable. It completely, it, it really is, you know, and, and, and one thing I wanted to ask real quick, Howard is, you know, you mentioned before that uh, you, 
you didn't grow up as the type of person who uh, played sports and hung out with, you know, friends and you go and do things. Your friends were uh, Galileo and, 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 and a bunch of other um, historical dignitaries and philosophers and so forth. Uh, and, and, and so even though, I don't know. Did you feel like an, I don't want to say the word outcast, but uh, you, you, you didn't, you weren't, you, by your own claim, you weren't normal. You didn't feel like um, all the other kids, right? I never fit in. And one of the craziest things, and, and mm -hmm. uh, Aubrey, this is really insane. There was a gang it called itself the Hartwell Gang. From the time yeah. I was four years old, used to chase me around the block and humiliate me and beat me up and all of that stuff. And then when I moved to a new house in a different neighborhood, the leader of that gang started to come over. Mm. And he became my champion. And I was collecting stamps. I was eight years old and collecting stamps. Right. So he made sure that I enrolled in the Jewish Center's stamp club. Mm -hmm. And then he became my political lieutenant. And he got me elected president of that stamp club. To do it, he had to punch wow. the leader of another faction that was pumping for its kid to be president in the nose, but he did it. So what I've discovered over the course of time is people will not accept me as a part of their group. They simply won't, but they will accept me as their leader. And so I've led group after group after group after group after group during my lifetime. And, and, and that was my question, right? Because if, if you're not accepted among the masses or among the group, as one of them, you know, uh, I don't know. I, I just think that human, the human response or the human reaction would be just to, I don't want to say cower away, but uh, it would just be to, to, to be on your own island, right? Or, or, or like you said, make your alternative universe, right? But it, which you did do, but you did it in such a way that it, it influences and impacts and connects with those masses with that well be because yeah because when you're leading a group you try to sense their needs you try to sense their interests you try to sense their passions and you right. try to become the tongue of those needs and interests and passions i mean uh, 15 years ago in oh. 2005 buzz aldrin um implored me to start a group in the space community and I started that group, and I've been running it ever since. It's called the Space Development Steering Committee. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it means that I have to listen with extreme care in every meeting and read all of their postings because my job is to sum up the spirit of that group and then to see the next big leap forward that may emerge from their thinking that may, they may not um, see. So like my artists, my job is to become a voice um, for a group. And I've been doing this one in 1988. I, just as I predicted in my, in my 40s, I got extremely sick. Now, frankly, I had been working on my first book and I had lost my interest in rock and roll PR because I'd learned all the lessons I felt that I could learn in it. When okay. you two came to me and, and showed interest, I wasn't interested in them. I'd already done something like that. When Mick Jagger's assistant came to me and showed interest in my working with Mick, I wasn't interested in that. I'd done that um, already. I was more interested in my book. But if you have a successful career, look, there are 
20 pages on me in the Billboard Guide to Music Publicity, which was a college textbook, 20 pages on nothing but me. It was on what I called perceptual engineering, um, an aspect of my technique. When you're at that level, your wife is not going to let you out of what you are doing because it would mean, <laughs> it would mean the loss of an income and it would mean the loss of prestige. That's right. Um, but so my illness kicked me out. Um, it looked like I was dying. Um, and, and for five years, I was too weak to talk. All I could do was lay in a bed. I was too weak to have another person in the room with me. Can you imagine that? Oh. Um, and that, uh, the, I got my voice back after five years, but I still was stuck in a bed. And during that time, I wrote uh, two books. And I found, no, I, found, I wrote three books, and I founded two international scientific groups. Again, to become the tongue of a group. There was a conflict in evolutionary biology over something called individual selection and group selection. And the individual selections had gotten group selection ridiculed. They'd gotten it, they'd made it so that talking seriously about group selection was impossible. So I gathered 40 group selectionists from all over the world. I could do this with the internet, um, even though I couldn't talk at that point, and, and became their voice. And then got a six-page story in the New York Times uh, Tuesday Science section, a six-column story that validated group selection and finally made it possible to discuss group selection without being thrown off your tenure track, without being barred from the major journals in the field. And those are the things that had happened before. And one of my major helpers was in Australia. But it didn't matter. We were on the Internet. And plus my time, my illness really screwed up my sense of time. So I was working at three in the morning and, and four in the morning and sometimes was still awake by nine in the morning. Um, so, um, but the point is you take these infirmities like being an outcast, which I have been since the time I was a baby, um, and you turn them to your advantage. Or you just keep persisting hard enough that they turn to your, their, your advantage on their own. And that's the road to rediscovery. Right on, 100%. And that leads me to ask you, Howard, that resilience that you just expressed regarding if you are seen as an outcast or you feel like you're an outcast or, or you are an outcast, and what you do is you take that and leverage it and, and turn it in such a way to where you're an influencer, you're a leader, you know? Um, is that the same resilience that, uh, that you felt that you had naturally, inherently within you when you became bedridden and still had that fire to work, still had that fire to write books and to make virtual appearances and all those sorts of things? Well, I was clinically depressed probably from the time I was five until the time I was about 65. Um, mm. And... Uh, that meant that every second of the day I was fighting depression. Mm -hmm. And when I was 14 years old, I learned the best way for me to fight depression is to work. Um, it's hard. You have to push yourself into it because you're depressed. You feel that you're of no use to anybody on planet Earth. Mm -hmm. um, but if you shove yourself through the first hour of work, by the second hour, you have forgotten about feeling useless. You have forgotten about your depression. Your depression has subsided. It hasn't gone away but it has subsided. And if you work ferociously, that depression will stay at bay as long as you are working. And if you are, if you are persistent in your work over the years, 
gradually your work will be bring you into contact with other human beings who will value you. I mean, at this point in my life, um, first of all, having an illness, chronic fatigue syndrome for 15 years, right. forced me to figure out my own body and try a bunch of treatments that were being tried by various people in the chronic fatigue syndrome community. And it took a long time and 30 different drugs and supplements, which I take twice a day, okay. plus a big shot I have to take every morning. But now, now, not only am I stronger than I was when I was a kid, I did 1,235 vibrational plankings this morning, um, first thing, after I woke up. Wow. And, I'm, and I'm 77 years old. Um, and I walk six miles a day. Um, either spending the time with my girlfriend on the phone or working, listening to books. Mm -hmm. So if you persist long enough and hard enough at what you are doing, other people will accept you. And now I'm, I go on 545 radio stations once a week. And because I do that, I don't feel unwanted anymore. That gotcha. keeps me feeling pretty much wanted for the rest of the week, which is oh, astonishing. Sure. Because yeah. we all have a tendency to wake up in the morning and think we're of no value to anybody on earth. Mm -hmm. um, and our first task, and one of our first tasks in the day, aside from brushing our teeth, is to push ourselves to go forward in spite of that feeling. Yeah. In spite. Yeah, in spite. Yeah. And eventually, if you work hard enough, people will discover the value of what you're doing to them. And they will let you know in some way or other that you are of value to them. That is tremendous, Howard. And, and, and I, don't, I don't have a lot of knowledge in the PR space, okay? But it, but it, it sounds to me as if uh, what you had to offer these iconic artists, uh, if they were willing to, you know, to, to, to give you that autonomy, what you had to offer them, uh, to me, is, is just something deeper, it sounds like something deeper within themselves that you will help usher out of them for them to discover, for the, to reveal to them about themselves that, um, that, that, that pretty much helps uh, everything else in their career um, from a public and a uh, household name perspective and, and just a recognition um, uh, 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 standpoint with the public with record sales, uh, it wasn't just the superficial, oh, you need to go on these radio interviews. You need to go on this late night talk show to push this new album. I mean, but, but, it's, but it's the deeper stuff that you seem to, to work with them on uh, to, to help them kind of realize the God within them to your point. Yeah, and so a perfect example of that is uh, John Mellencamp. Mm-hmm. One day, John Mellencamp called me, which he very seldom did, and he said, I've just been offered $1.25 million for my song, Hurt So Good, for a catch-up commercial. Now, if you remember the, the 1970s and 1980s, catch-up did not come in squeeze bottles. Heinz right. ketchup came in glass bottles. And sure. getting that ketchup to flow on your hamburger was a 20-minute proposition. You pounded it, you shook it, you yep. stuck your knife up its throat, yep. you did everything in your power to get the ketchup out. Right. And Heinz decided to turn that into an advantage. So they got Harley Simon's song, Anticipation. Mm -hmm. And they used that. it. Right. And then they wanted to use John Mellencamp's shirt so good. And back at that point, $1.25 million was a lot more money than it is today. Right. 
even though today it's both of us would not turn it, neither of us would turn it down. <laughs> no, we wouldn't. <laughs> yeah. So John said, what should I do? And I said, John, what do you want to be doing in 15 years? You want to be making music for your audiences or do you want to be living off of the interest from your investments? And John said, I want to be making music for my audience. I said, okay, you have to turn down the ketchup commercial. Mm -hmm. And here's why. You portray yourself as a little bastard. That's who you really are. Um, it's as if, imagine the city of Jerusalem back in the days of the prophets with high, high walls. And you are that person locked out of those walls. They won't even let you in. But you raise your fist in the air and you say, I have a right to exist. And when you say that, you say it on behalf of hundreds of millions of kids who feel like you. If you take that catcher commercial, it's like walking through the gates of the city and being one of those people partying within the walls. You're no longer, you no longer have that ability to speak on behalf of those who are locked out and need a voice. And John turned down the ketchup commercial, and his manager, Billy Gaff, who was the manager of Rod Stewart, left him over that. Uh, um, really? But it meant that John had an enduring career. Well, of course, and his integrity is with intact, right? I mean, right. Uh, yeah, that which is uh, very important as well. And once again, Howard, you painted that picture and <laughs> explaining to him, you know, not just saying, you know, don't do this or don't do that, but asking him, which one would you rather pursue, right? Retire right. from living off interest or making music. And he's like, making music is back to the passion, right? Back to the drive, back to the, 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 the emotion and the energy that you feel from, uh, for, from performing an art. And right. you touched on that with him. And you vividly painted the picture of what would happen if he went the other way. So uh, <laughs> again, I, I, I have to truly, truly say I genuinely, genuinely appreciate how you paint the picture for the listeners um, in the conversations you've had with these amazing people, as well as the journey that you've had ever since childhood, and even the setbacks and, and some, of the, some of the obstacles and, and struggles you've had, like suffering through depression and, and then, you know, the back pain and the chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, man, those are, those are, those are um, very undesirable uh, events that, you know, it's just life. We all have to go through them, I'm sure. But uh, one other thing I want to say that I appreciate it because I was thinking about this as you were talking, um, how you bridge the gaps, right? I mean, I I'm sure the listeners going into this conversation was wondering, you know, how did, say, science kind of bridge over into art, which kind of bridge over into uh, public relations and, and and then bridge over into writing, you know, and, and science. And, yeah, yeah. I remember I've written articles on, uh, I've written peer reviewed articles mm -hmm. or spoken at scholarly conferences on 12 different scientific fields um, since 1988 when I became ill. 12 different scientific fields from quantum physics and cosmology to evolutionary biology, evolutionary psychology, neuroscience. Uh, information science and uh, biosystems and biopolitics and even governance. Um, I keynoted a UN conference in Korea, uh, South Korea, on governance of all the strange things. <laughs> and, and, and anything I can do, you can do better. So you too can do this kind of stuff. Wow. It's a 
matter of sheer dedication and persistence. And and I and I love and I love what you what you've phrased as finding the gods within you, right? Um, there's there's uh, there's I don't know there's a poetic feel to it that I that I that I get at least when I when I hear you not only say the phrase but explain how it occurred to you and explain how you you know shared that with uh, teaching the artists. Um, just it's, it's just absolutely beautiful howard i've really really enjoyed this conversation uh I'm, I'm sure the listeners have enjoyed this conversation uh man you're a storyteller you're a great storyteller <laughs> you paint the picture i mean i can view in my mind's eye what you're talking about when you are like it in whatever place, right? It could be Carnegie Hall and it could be dark and I can, I can feel the temperature around me. I can feel the, the heat from the stage lights and all that stuff, you know, just every little detail, thanks to your uh, vivid storytelling. So, man, I'm, I'm greatly, greatly uh, appreciative of you coming on to the show. So uh, now, oh yeah, one other thing I wanted to make sure. Is, right. Um, I want the listeners to know how they can learn more about you and pick up maybe a copy of your books. Right. Well, you can go to amazon.com okay. and look up Howard Bloom. It's spelled B-L-O-O-M, like the okay. flowers that bloom in the spring. Mm-hmm. And, and you'll find all seven of my books there, including Einstein, Michael Jackson, and me, a search for soul in the power pits of rock and roll, which tells you an awful lot more about what we've just been talking about. That's and, the one I'm looking for, by the way. <laughs> right. And that's, that's just been, as I said, it's been named the best book of the year mm-hmm. by the, the New York um, Weekly Times and the LA Weekly Times. And I mean, the reviews have been just flat out astonishing. And my website is howardbloom.net. And you can find tons of interesting material. You can spend a year on that site um, reading the stuff on that site. And then if you, if you try to follow me on Facebook, well, you can follow my spillover page. You know, I've, they only let you have 5,000 people, and right. I'm all booked up. But you can try to follow me on Facebook because that's the best way to communicate with you. Um, so, so hopefully uh, anybody listening, uh, I look forward to hearing what you have to say about, how, uh, um, about uh, Einstein, Michael Jackson, and me, A Search for Soul and Power of Bits of Rock and Roll because that book is precious to me, and, but they're all precious to me. So that's, that's me, and then I'm on Twitter at Howard X Bloom. Wonderful. Howard, we're going to um, put direct links to, um, to your books on Amazon, your website, your Facebook spillover page, and your Twitter handle on our episode show notes so that our listeners uh, can – uh, get to your information directly by clicking those embedded links on the show notes. So uh, we'll make sure and have those included for sure. All right. Now we're going to get to a segment I like to call three for the road. And in three for the road, that's where I ask, uh, I ask you, Howard, three random short yet thought provoking questions uh, where I challenge you to answer in five words or less. So what do you think? You think you'd be up for it? Uh, it's going to be a test. It's not going to be easy, but yes, I'm ready. <laughs> okay. All right. Great. And by the way, uh, in previous, uh, previous episodes, when 
you know, because some of these are thought provoking, um, the guest would get into a groove and it would extend past five words. Right. Um, but, 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 but it's a vibe, it's a groove and it's something poignant. Right. And, right. And, and provocative uh, that, that, you know, and I just let them go. I just let them keep going. You know, right. So there's no pass fail on this. <laughs> right. Okay, good. All right. Great. So starting with number one for three for the road, name something that you love to do that can keep you up until the wee hours of the night or early morning. I love writing because I love researching a new topic that I have never encountered before in my life Mm. um, and or only done only encountered peripherally, you know, and going into depth and learning as much about it as a grad student with a PhD, mm. going for a PhD would learn about it. It's fascinating. The stuff that you find when you start digging is just amazing. That wasn't five words, but that's okay. Uh, it's, You're on a vibe. It's work <laughs> research. Okay. Wonderful. So, so is it is is it writing? Or- it's the research and the writing. Okay. Because gotcha. you try to make the writing sing. You try to make the writing sing like poetry. Right. But the information behind what you've written has, it takes you to the most astounding areas, mm-hmm. that areas you never anticipated. Mm-hmm. Um, in my book, um, The God Problem, I wanted to, since every research book, every, every encyclopedia, um, uh, the, all the major books on the history of uh, Western philosophy said that the Babylonians had invented the 360 degree angle. And because I need to make something vivid to you, I wanted you to feel that you were in the sandals of a Babylonian with a protractor in your hand, figuring out the angles of the stars in the skies. Um, And I looked for a Babylonian protractor. Was it made out of copper? Was it made out of wood? Was it made out of clay? Um, So I could put it in your hands. Mm -hmm. And I could not find a Babylonian protractor. And I kept kicking myself and saying, Bloom, you should stop researching this. You're getting off on a sidetrack. And this is taking you a month. This is right. taking you a month now. And then, uh-huh. Aubrey, I had a sudden realization. I could not find a Babylonian protractor anywhere because there was no such thing as a Babylonian protractor. And I discovered the Babylonians had not invented the, the angle as we know it and wow. the 360-degree angle at all. And that set me off on the path of a bunch of mysteries I had not anticipated when I laid out the outline of this book. It was a totally unexpected series of discoveries that you won't find in any other book. And that James Burke, who, who did seven BBC TV series, um, many of which appeared on PBS, including Connections, which is fabulous. He said that the book, as a result, is the most exciting cliffhanger of a book he's ever read in his life. Can you imagine that? It's a book on a new way of looking at science in the world, and it's a cliffhanger. Um, (laughs) That's not the genre you expect cliffhangers to be on, you know? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. All right. Awesome, awesome. So number two for Three for the Road, fill in the blank. Of all my journeys and all the places I've been, and all the people I've met, and all the things I've done, I have learned that people in general are 
Kind, generous, and moral. Kind, generous, and moral. Love it. Love it. Awesome. At the beginning of how I accidentally started the 60s, yeah. the opening chapter is about the night I was picked up in Oregon by three murderers, and we were all headed to San Francisco. And how, after two hours of bragging about all the murders they'd done and oral, all the oral sex that they'd had, mm-hmm. they showed they cared about me as deeply as if they were my own father. They said to me, you cannot live a life without having a purpose in your life and a woman. And they tried to convert me to what they felt was a life of value from what they felt was my bohemian, you know, my hippie yeah. way of life. There was no name for hippies yet. Yeah. But they, and what does that show about them? Generosity, warmth, mm-hmm. and deep, a deep moral sensibility. Mm. True kindness. It's true. Right. Yeah. I'm digging it. I'm loving it. All right, Howard. Question number three to top off three for the road. If science were a dessert, what <laughs> would it be? Oh, God, if science were a dessert, it would be a lemon meringue pie. Um, <laughs> Is that right? I, I tell yes. you, that's one of, your, one of your tops, one of your favorites? Oh, yes, I adore lemon meringue pies. <laughs> uh, it is tasty. It is good. Right. Uh, love it. In love other words, it. It would be, science is multi-layered. And science works because of the contrast between its various elements. And how those contrasts make an astonishing and satisfying whole, but a whole that leaves you wanting more because if you don't step out of one episode of science wanting twice as many episodes and then out of the next two episodes wanting four times as many episodes, then you're not on the track of real science. Mm, Much like the texture and taste of a lemon meringue pie. Right. (laughs) Uh, That is awesome. Oh, wonderful. Well, that finishes up three for the road, Howard. And man, I tell you, thank you, thank you, thank you for coming on the show. It has been so great having you, man. Really appreciate it. Aubrey, it's been wonderful. Oh, likewise. And we're going to have to have a follow-up because you and I, we could talk <laughs> forever. And, and there's tons of music questions I have. And, and, and I think in a few months, if you don't mind, we'll, we'll have a nice little sequel to where we can dig into some other good stuff. Well, that sounds terrific. We can do Michael Jackson because that's a whole episode in itself. That's what I would like to do next. Michael right. Jackson, for sure. <laughs> right. Okay, Aubrey, have a wonderful night. Oh, awesome. Awesome. And uh, I want to send a big thanks to all of you for checking in and listening. And please remember to subscribe to this podcast, leave feedback and share with family and friends. The Road to Rediscovery is part of a movement, a revolution. And guess what? You are now part of it. Together, we are roadies. And it sure feels good having you on the journey with me. Thanks again for listening. We'll chat again soon. The Road to Rediscovery is an AJ Shark production.